And so you walk into this job interview, and uh, you're nervous, but you're also hopeful. Um, There's this knot of anxiety in your stomach. You've studied up, you've prepared for the questioning and the conversation to come, but as much as you have uh, uh, done that, as, as much as you're trying to talk yourself into feeling confident, there's this underlying sort of awareness of how weak you are. You get there on time. They usher you into this little side room where you're awaiting your interviewer. And you're just getting the nervous energy out. You're sitting there kind of wiggling around in your seat. You're wringing your hands. And after a moment, she walks in and introduces herself. And the interview begins. And you're deliberately sitting up straight. You're smiling, making eye contact, doing everything you can to make a good impression. When inevitably, within a few minutes, she asks you that classic interview question. What is your greatest weakness? How do you answer? How are you going to answer that question? You're thinking, I want this job. So I cannot be completely transparent with my answer here. It's not as though I can say, well, I lack motivation, not very organized, I have trouble multitasking, and I rarely get along with coworkers. No, you can't say that. That's not what we do. You try to finesse this answer. And you know that there is this mountain of weakness in your life, but in spite of it, you're crafting this answer that paints this picture of yourself that's so positive. Isn't that what you do in that situation? You do everything you possibly can to show this person that you possess the skills and the competency for that job, that you are the right fit for this position all the while you're knowing that you are much, much weaker than what you're letting on. So the question's hanging in the air. What is your greatest weakness? And you're working out in your own mind how to present your weaknesses in the best possible light. Well, thankfully, serving Jesus is not like a job interview where you have to package your shortcomings in this way that makes you look like the perfect candidate. Because in God's kingdom, God's people do not rely on their own strength. The task, the life, the mission to which Jesus calls us does not require that we make our weaknesses look good, that we pretend that they aren't there, that we put forth this image that I am personally equipped to handle everything in and of myself. You don't need to dress up your weaknesses for Jesus. You simply need Jesus. So the call for us today is to come before Jesus honestly. Embracing that uh, though you are, you are so weak, though your weaknesses are great, His strengths are sufficient. Now our text for today is just loaded with weakness. The disciples' failures, their shortcomings, their deficiencies are all over these pages. And throughout these verses, we're going to see that these disciples are weak in three particular areas. They are weak in their power to serve the Lord. They are weak in their inability to understand Jesus' teaching. And they are weak in that they are valuing the wrong things. So Jesus instructs His disciples because they need to learn that in light of their many weaknesses, their strength is in Christ, not in themselves. And as we will see, when they try to serve and minister apart from total reliance on the strength of Jesus Christ, they will fail and they will falter. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. 
Our text for today is Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 50. We're going to start with Luke 9, 37 to 43. This is God's Word to us. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So in this conversation about weakness, it's important to note that in light of your weakness, your power must be Jesus' power. In light of your weakness, your power must be Jesus' power. Now in some ways, our text is picking up where we've already been. This miracle narrative that we just read is actually the final miracle that Jesus performs in the Galilean portion of His earthly ministry. And it emphasizes these truths that Jesus has been highlighting over and over again over these last few chapters. As Jesus heals this boy, we see that He has power to do the miraculous. We see that He has authority over everything, even evil spirits. We see the importance of faith. And while these foundational things are clearly embedded in this text, we also see that the text gives us this amazing contrast between the weakness of the disciples and between the strength of Jesus Christ. Jesus, Peter, James, and John have just been on this mountaintop praying when those three disciples have witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. And our text begins when those four come down from the mountain and they're met by this crowd that's been lingering around Jesus for a while now. And soon after meeting this crowd, this problem arises. And that problem is two-pronged. First, there's a boy and he is just tormented by this evil spirit. Look again at verses 38 and 39. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. This spirit is really working this boy over. It's causing what seemed to be an epileptic seizure. It's causing him to cry out and it's seizing him and convulsing him and causing him to foam at the mouth. The text even says this thing is, this spirit is shattering the boy. Meaning it's, it's breaking him, it's crushing him, it's seeking to destroy him. It is affecting this boy with tremendously harmful effect. Mark's account of the same event in Mark chapter 9 tells us that this uh, spirit has been uh, afflicting this boy since he was a young child. Even going as far as described that this spirit has been seeking to throw him into fire and water for the purpose of destroying him. This boy is besieged by this spirit. It's a problem. And that problem is only magnified by the fact that these disciples are impotent to help. They don't have the ability. Look at verse 40. And I begged your disciples to cast it out. And they could not. 
You can hear the passion of this father over his only son as he says it. I begged him, Jesus. They couldn't do it. Now remember, those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were up on the mountaintop with Jesus when all of that was happening. So the other nine, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, Simon, James, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot are the nine who are trying and they are failing. And this is the case even though Jesus has already commissioned them and sent them out and empowered them to do that exact thing. Remember back at uh, chapter 9, verse 1, where Jesus commissions the twelve. This is what that verse says. And He called the twelve together and He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. So if Jesus has called these men to cast out all demons, and He's empowered these men to cast out all demons, why have these men failed? Why have they proven to be far too weak for this task? Well, Luke, as he's carried along and inspired by the Holy Spirit, doesn't say. It's clear that it's not Luke's objective to tell us why they have failed. He's just telling us about the failure. And he does so in a way that uh, faults and implicates the disciples. Matthew and Mark, however, tell us why they failed. And in the parallel account of this event in Matthew chapter 17, verses 19 and 20, we read this. Then the disciples came and Jesus to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. So according to Matthew, the disciples have failed because they've been trying apart from faith in the power of God. They're trying in their own strength. They can't cast this demon out in their own strength, disconnected from living faith in God for the, for the, the empowerment of this task. Mark reveals another angle of their failure. In Mark chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, it says, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So in Mark, Jesus makes it clear that this particular spirit could only be driven away by prayer. So it's pretty obvious that these disciples had not been praying. They hadn't prayed this demon away from this boy. So the bottom line is this. The disciples have failed because their faith was weak and because they were not praying. The truth remains that the disciples just could not do this thing in their own strength. They needed the power of God for this work for ministry, for, for, for fulfilling the calling that Jesus has called them to. They needed the power of God and they needed to rely on Him. The right move for the disciples was not to give it a shot in their own abilities. That will always prove insufficient. But in the weakness of their own selves, just saying, Jesus, this is impossible for me. But if You're calling me to this work, if You're empowering me for this task, though I am so weak, I trust that you are so very strong and my faith for the success of this is firmly planted in you, Lord. That's exactly the posture posture that the Apostle Paul takes toward God, toward ministry, toward other people. We see it as he writes this letter to the church in Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, after he has just described this laundry list of all of the hardships, all of the trials and persecutions that he has endured. 
After just describing the thorn that has been plaguing him, the thorn in his flesh, Paul writes this, verse 9. But he, and he's speaking of Jesus, said to me, so Jesus is speaking to Paul, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And here's Paul's answer. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is facing this impossible task. He is traveling around planting churches in this world that is hostile to the gospel and to God's people. He's operating within this uh, Roman Empire that is seeking to stamp out Christianity. He's planting churches. He's enduring all this persecution and trial. He's dealing with issues within the Christian community. How could Paul possibly have the strength for that? For that ministry? And in the midst of that, he's learned to think about his own weaknesses in a godly way. He's learned to think about his own weaknesses in light of Christ. Recognizing that Christ's strength is most proclaimed through Paul's weakness. Paul knows that he is strongest when he is weak because that's when he's most reliant on Christ and that's also when the world sees Christ most powerfully. And the result is Paul reveling in his weakness. Boasting in his weakness. He's content with his weakness. Because there's freedom in his weakness as Christ provides the strength. And that is the approach uh, that Paul took that's undoubtedly uh, the pattern for our lives as well. And trust me, I know we read this narrative and we sympathize with the disciples, don't we? I mean, it's easy to do. They've shown glimmers of faith on the journey so far. They've left everything for Jesus Uh, They've just struggled so much along the way. They're so flawed as they continue to learn what God is calling them to, what life in Christ's kingdom would actually be like. We identify with their failings. We get it. We understand. That's our story too. We identify with them. Like these disciples, we are weak people too. We are prone to overestimate our own ability to navigate life's course apart from Christ rather than relying on the means and the might of Jesus. We get it. Yet while we identify and sympathize with the disciples, we also come under the powerful charge of Christ in this passage, which communicates that successful service to God is only possible through the empowerment that He provides. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there's this general call in your life to love, to serve, to follow your King and your Savior, Jesus. Whatever the specifics, the particulars of that call are, whatever he's calling you to, even now as you sit in these seats, as you think about it, the things, the longings he's put on your heart, the specific people that are popping into your mind, whether God is putting it on your heart to speak a word of truth to a brother or sister who's caught in sin, to to, to speak a truth in love to that person, even this afternoon in some way, or to shepherd your kids to fear the Lord in some particular manner different this week, or even to give more, whatever God is calling you to, when you know that Jesus is the one who provides the strength for these things, it changes the way you think about your own weakness. You no longer need to manufacture strength in and of yourself, but you act in faith, understanding that you are weak and Jesus is strong and that the weak 
need the strong. Amazingly, even though these disciples have failed, Jesus um, teaches them this lesson about His compassion and His strength and His power. His immediate response to their faithlessness is to, uh, to uh, call it out. He says, it says in verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And that answer re- uh, begins with this rebuke. And who's he rebuking? Well, I believe he's rebuking the crowd in general, the disciples in particular. These verses in chapter 9, it's pretty clear that the focus is on Jesus teaching and correcting and training his disciples. So it makes sense that they would have been included in on that rebuke. And he calls them twisted and faithless. That's language right out of Deuteronomy 32.5 when the song of Moses is offered up right before Moses is about to die. And he's talking about the waywardness of the people. He says they are a crooked and twisted generation. And here is Jesus using the same language to describe this crowd and his own disciples. In their faithful, faithlessness, they've been crooked. They're, they're crooked. They're twisted up. They're turned around. They're wayward. And that rebuke is so appropriate because service to God as disconnected from true faith in Him is this backwards concept. And instead, Jesus desires that His followers fully understand their own shortcomings act in complete dependence on the presence and on the power of God. So he rebukes them, but then he reminds them where their true strength lies. Look at the end of verse 41, 42, 43. It says, bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. And gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. So he's standing in the midst of these mixed up, faithless people, and he is compassionate, he's gracious. Jesus is powerful. After rebuking his followers, he then rebukes the spirit that's been plaguing and tormenting this boy to the point with the, with the powerful effect of being able to give this kid back to his father, restored made whole, and then the crowds just are proclaiming the majesty, the greatness, the awesomeness of God. And it's this moment where Jesus shows the disciples, this is who I am. This is what I can do. Your strength is in me. You see this, kid? Where you were just weak, I was strong. Where you just failed, I was victorious. Your strength is in me. Don't forget that. And as these disciples will soon find out, the most definitive symbol of Christ's strength on behalf of a weak people is the cross. This is where Jesus is headed. This is why He came. This is why He's spending time with these disciples. Because of the cross. The cross is is where Jesus would hang for the sake of this helpless, hopeless people proving to be strong for them in a way that they never could have been for themselves. Taking the sins of humanity upon Himself, enduring the wrath of God for these people who are stuck, enslaved to sin, dead in their sin, giving them new life again if faith is placed in Him. The cross is the symbol of His strength on behalf of the weak. The cross which reminds us of our desperate need for our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the perfect example that the weak need the strong, and we are weak people. And the text teaches that in light of your weakness, your power must be Jesus' power. 
That's true in this life. As you serve Him, as you love Him, as you use your hands, in your mind, in your heart, in your words for the sake of exalting Christ, you need His strength. But that's also true for eternity because you could never earn your way there apart from Jesus Christ. He's the strength for you. He's the one that restores the relationship that our sin breaks with the Holy God. So we need Him. We need His strength in this life. We need His strength for eternity. The text also tells us that in light of your weakness, your understanding must submit to God's knowledge. That your understanding must submit to Jesus' knowledge. Look at the second half of verse 43 to verse 45. But while they were all marveling at everything He was doing, Jesus said to His disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. Most obviously, these verses reveal that Jesus has knowledge of something that the disciples can't figure out. Right? He has knowledge. They're misunderstanding. There's a disconnect. And uh, this disconnect between the knowledge of Jesus and the understanding of the disciples is actually framed in a question from the previous text we just read. Verse 41, he says, How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Jesus asked that question publicly for the crowd to hear. How long am I to be with you? And uh, as we know, in one sense, Jesus is always with his people. In another very real sense, for these disciples, he's not going to be with them physically much longer. He asks the question, foreshadowing this future reality that his time walking in their midst is short. And it's, it's winding down. The time is coming. He's, he's going to ascend. He's not going to be with them much longer. So then he asks, how long will I bear with you? And by that he means tolerate, endure, put up with. And it's related back to their faithlessness. He's showing this holy uh, impatience with their lacking faith. So Jesus initiates this idea that He's not going to be among them physically much longer. He does it in the question, verse 41, but then He answers that question in those verses we just read. Verse 43 to 45. And while He asks the question publicly, it's, it's uh, fascinating to me that He answers it privately in the midst of these disciples in this intimate setting He wants to teach them about the nature of of his mission. And this is the second time in chapter 9 that he's taken these particular special moments to take these guys in and to let them know where he's going and what his time as Messiah on earth is going to look like. And he says this these, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, listen up. Don't, don't miss this. Don't let this pass by you. Don't zone out right now. Focus, lock in, take this in, and remember what I'm about to say. This is meaningful. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's telling them, guys, I need to die. Jesus needs to die. It's the best thing for His people. It's the best thing for these disciples. And Jesus reveals it also in this fascinating way because while the crowds are still, uh, st- still uh, marveling at His awesome deeds and, and His wonderful words and all of these things, He takes these guys aside and says, here's where I'm headed. I'm going to be delivered into the, sons of men, uh, of, uh, the hands of men. 
So his majesty is lined up side by side with his suffering and his impending humiliation. So Jesus makes this momentous statement for the second time in chapter 9 about how the messianic mission is going to be carried out. And it's this scene that shows us once again that the disciples are weak. It exposes their inability to understand the truth. Verse 45 tells us, but they did not understand the saying. So the disciples are not getting what Jesus is saying, but don't mix up what that means yourself. It's not that Jesus' death and His resurrection, the words and the propositions that He's saying are going in their ears, scrambling up, and they just it's unintelligible that they can't understand what the sentences mean. That's not what's happening. The disciples cannot fathom how the Christ could die. How those two things could match together. They just didn't get it. How that could be God's plan for His people. How could the Messiah who came to save and to conquer and to claim victory on behalf of His people end up delivered into the hands of men and eventually dead on a cross? In fact, Matthew 17, when he's describing uh, the way that these disciples respond to Jesus, it says that they were distressed. The news was so distressing, so much so that they just couldn't comprehend the concept. It's showing their weakness. In their minds, the Messiah's victory would look far different than what Jesus is actually saying. So when Jesus tells them, I'm being delivered into the hands of men, that's going to happen in their own weakness, in their own limited understanding, they just fail to understand. This failure, however, is not like the last one, is it? It's not like when they, 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 in their weakness, they failed to provide the faith necessary for praying the Spirit out of this boy. It's not that sort of mess up. This one is God-ordained. Look at verse 45. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. So God is keeping their understanding of His mission foggy. He's keeping that a little bit cloudy in their minds. So this isn't a a situation where the disciples have messed up again. It's not that kind of failure. This is a God-ordained weakness. This is God saying, This area of weakness is my plan for you right now. Honor me in the midst of it. We don't know why. Uh, The Holy Spirit through Luke does not tell us why God has uh, sovereignly planned to keep his mission, uh, this, this portion of his plan, foggy for these guys in that moment. We can assume he initially told them to listen up so that when the time was right, the Holy Spirit would uh, enable them to look back and in retrospect see how God's redemptive plan fits together. But in the moment, their understanding is weak. And for reasons we don't know, they're even afraid to ask for clarification. Nonetheless, we learn that Jesus knows the fullness of God's plan while it is God's sovereign prerogative that the disciples do not. He's once again strong while the disciples are weak. And this time, it's a matter of God's sovereignty. Much to our chagrin, um, it is not God's responsibility to tell us why He is doing what He's doing. And I know that's, that's a hard thing to hear sometimes. Because um, we want full disclosure from God about everything, don't we? We want Him to run things by us. We want explanations for every little thing that doesn't sit well with us. But sometimes God withholds that kind of understanding because His plan in that is better. And if God is currently waiting to reveal some portion of His plan to you, why you're going through some trial, 
why you're waiting on Him, why He's leading you in some direction, He has every right to do so. He is Almighty God. So where does that leave you? What is your obligation in trying to faithfully walk with the Lord when uh, you don't understand everything He's doing? Well, Charles Stanley says this, God's obligation is not to tell me why. God's obligation is to reveal His will and my obligation is to obey. God's obligation is not to tell me why. God's obligation is to reveal His will and my obligation is to obey. So as a Christian, your, understand, your, your approach to understanding life is this, saying, Lord, I acknowledge my tremendous weakness to understand the complex things happening all around me. My grasp of what is happening in this world is so limited. My understanding of the fullness of your plan is so finite. My comprehension of the specifics of why you're allowing certain things is so weak. But Lord, I, uh, Lord Jesus, I know that you know these mysterious things fully. They are so mysterious to me and to us, but you know them fully. You know your mission. Where I am blind, you clearly see the path ahead. So I echo what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. When he says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And we echo what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. So I willingly place myself under the authority of Your revealed Word to me, which is Scripture. I submit my faulty understanding to Your perfect knowledge. I wholeheartedly obey that portion of Your plan which You have revealed to me. Where I am weak, I know You are strong, and I trust You, Lord Jesus. I know that in my weakness, my understanding must Submit to your knowledge. I know that I'm weak. I know that you're strong. And I'm mindful that the weak need the strong. So in light of our weakness, we learn that our power must be Jesus' power. And our understanding must submit to Jesus' knowledge. But the text also communicates that in light of your weakness, your values must conform to Jesus' values. Verses 46-48. to This is the message Jesus gives His disciples in those verses. Look there with me. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in My name receives Me. And whoever receives Me receives Him who sent Me. For He who is least among you all is the one who is great. Luke presents this narrative in kind of an off-putting way. Because he puts it side by side with Jesus' the prediction of Jesus' death. And so we just come off a of reading that Jesus is going to be delivered into the hands of men right into this scene where the disciples start arguing over their own greatness. This, this ultimate act of humility matched up with this, this, this prideful dispute. And their argument shows that they just haven't fully grasped what life in the kingdom is going to be like. Because self-promotion is not to be sought out in Christ's kingdom. But it also shows us that their values are out of whack. 
And uh, Jesus quickly takes issue with their misplaced values. Look at verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, so he hears this argument, he sees this dispute, and he boils down the problem to a heart issue. They're failing to value greatness properly because there's faulty reasoning in their hearts. And Jesus corrects the disciples' faulty, that, that, that faulty reasoning in their hearts with this um, object lesson. He takes this kid, he corrals him over and brings him next to himself and he says, all right guys, look, look at him. Here's this child who's small. He's the perfect example of someone who's limited and weak physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, clearly this kid is not someone who's the greatest uh, by the world standards. Clearly, I mean, even in our own culture, he's not regarded very highly. You can't even teach him the law yet. It's not even old enough for that. Just a little kid. And Jesus says, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Jesus isn't saying one's greater than the other, he's making this blanket statement about greatness. And one thing that we pull out of that is that greatness is found in the humble treatment of other people. He's telling the disciples, stop thinking about lifting yourself up. Stop being concerned about your own exaltation and receive the least. Think about Him. Think about the least among you. There's greatness in that. So the charge is to treat everyone, even those people who are deemed lowly by the world's standards, with humility, not to seek out greatness for yourselves. It's this huge reversal of priorities. Because Jesus is defining greatness differently than the world does, differently than what the disciples were doing, differently than what we naturally do. And we fail at this all the time when we inherently look down at other people thinking that they are less worthy than than ourselves. I mean, it is so easy for us to look at someone and say, look at that guy. I make more money than him. Um, A little bit more educated. Uh, My... Home life's a little bit more put together. My social standing is a little bit more prestigious. My background uh, is a little bit more impressive. Or on the flip side to say, look at him. Look at all he's been given. I've had the tougher life. I've had to overcome more adversity. My struggle's been greater. I've worked harder. I've actually achieved more. Jesus says, abolish that line of thinking. Abolish that type of pride that's in your heart. Stop comparing and humbly treat everybody the same. Treat each other with humility. Greatness, according to the text, is also found uh, in nearness to God. He says, if you receive the lowly in my name, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive the Father. And true greatness is found in closeness, nearness to God. So we read this and we come away knowing that like the disciples, the reasoning of our hearts is oftentimes off-kilter too. Uh, We have bouts with selfishness and pride too. Uh, So even now, take a moment and inspect your heart. Are your values lining up with Jesus' values? Are you defining greatness by humbly loving God and other people? Or are you pridefully, selfishly, seeking it out for yourself in some way. If that's you, submit to God's Word, confess your sin, and ask the Lord to give you His values. And uh, Jesus continues to reorder these guys' values. And we see it as He corrects the way they think about 
Christian unity and cooperation. Look at verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So the disciples are messing up again. This time they're doing exactly what Jesus just told them not to do. Here's John on behalf of the disciples saying, He's not in our little circle, Jesus. He's an outsider. He's not with us, so we told him to stop. Jesus' reply is bold. He gives them a command. He says, do not stop him. But then he gives them this guiding principle. For the one who's not against you is for you. So the right thing to have done would have been, this guy's preaching the name of Jesus. He's with us. Let's encourage him. He's a co-laborer. He's a, he's, a, he's a fellow servant. He's helping us advance the mission. It's a common mission. He's on our team. Let's encourage this guy. Now sometimes it can feel like your ministry, and being, you know, doing this vocationally, um, this is a danger for me. It's a danger for Josh. Pastors everywhere. Sometimes it can feel like your ministry is the only ministry. Right? That it's the best thing going. It's the only thing going. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. God's kingdom is vast. It involves people from all over the place working together with this common heart, with this common goal of lifting up the name of Christ and making Him known on earth. And if that person is truly exalting the name of Jesus, God bless him. Not to say that there aren't people out there teaching false things. Um, The Bible clearly tells us to be discerning and watchful of false teachers. And one way to do that is to just continually match up what they're doing, what they're saying, their ministry, their teaching, their lives, up against the truth of Scripture. And if there's a disconnect, then we deal with it. But if that person is truly, truly exalting the name of Jesus, he's ministering in truth, not in error, we bless him. Uh, let me give you an example. A couple minute drive from here, there is a, a church that's just been planted in Dedham called Encounter Church. And uh, these guys who planted the church, the men and their families, they love Jesus. They're passionate about preaching the gospel. Um, their hearts are awesome. So we praise God for them. Just a few weeks ago, many of you may remember, on their first Sunday meeting, we stood here in this room. We collectively lifted up our voices to God and asked God to care for them and protect them and bless their ministry. And we prayed for them together. In our midweek connection groups, we had, we had uh, those people who are participating in those write out handwritten notes to encourage the planters and their wives. Because we understand they're not our rivals, they're our brothers and sisters. They're not against us. They're for us. And it would be ungodly for us to say, hey, you guys, stop what you're doing. You're not us. Wicked. But that type of cooperation, that kind of unity, is exactly what the disciples are not getting in the text. They're getting it wrong. They are weak because their values are out of whack. And they need the strength of Jesus to correct that weakness. Um, I have this uh, ruler in my desk drawer at home. This is it. It's an impressive ruler. And uh, it sits in my desk drawer at home and I have it because I am compulsive sometimes. And I have this thing where I, I read the books I read. I like to mark them up and underline things. And even in my Bible, I'm always underlining. And it drives me nuts if the lines are all crazy. 
So I have a ruler handy, and I use to just underline in my Bible and underline in my books. And, uh, but there's an issue. You'll see this thing is not in the best of shape. It's seen better days. But what you may not be able to see is that on this edge, there are all kinds of grooves and divots and indentations all along the side. Uh, my two-year-old loves to sneak in and grab this thing and bend it and play drums with it on things and whack it into stuff. And he doesn't necessarily mean it half the time, but now this, the ruler is, when you try and make a line, it's just this crazy, squiggly line, and it drives me nuts. Honestly, 99% of people probably would think it was straight, but it drives me nuts. So the point is this. The disciples are this ruler. In their weakness, in their sin, their values are all crooked and out of whack. <clears throat> But like that ruler's edge, which needs some correcting, which needs some straightening out, if these guys are ever going to be useful servants in the kingdom of God, uh, Jesus is taking the time to straighten out their edges. He's teaching them how to think about the world and how to think about life and how to think about people and ministry and, and, and service to Him so that they can be effective in the kingdom. And that is also the effect that this passage has on us. So ask yourself, where are your values not lining up with Jesus' values? Are you walking in sin just because you do not want to accept what Jesus has to say about something? Are you letting your own ideas guide your own personal ethics? Is your worldview coming from the words of Christ or from this wicked place in which we live? Are you setting the trajectory for the way you conduct business and maintain relationships and establish priorities? Or are you deriving your values from Christ? If you can't honestly say that Jesus is the one informing your values, here's how Jesus is straightening you out this morning. With His Word, which tells us a good place to start, humbly love God, Humbly love other people. Embrace cooperation and unity with other true believers. And to be straightened out, you need the power of Jesus Christ. We are weak. He is strong. And the weak need the strong. So God's Word has revealed to us this morning that in light of your weakness, your power must be Jesus' power. That in light of your weakness, Uh, Your understanding must submit to Jesus' knowledge and that in light of your weakness, your values must conform to Jesus' values. And as you respond to the passage, don't approach life like a job interview where you have to compensate for your weaknesses with these inadequate expressions of your own strength that don't get you anywhere. Instead, think about your weakness the way Paul did, saying, I am completely weak in every way, Lord. I'm unable to serve you faithfully. I'm too finite to understand your ways. I'm too fallible to value things properly. I'm completely weak, Lord. Yet where I am weak, you are strong, and in Christ I boast in my weakness. Look to Jesus strengthening and correcting these disciples and understand that in your weakness he can do the same for you. Jesus is strong. You are weak. And the weak need the strong. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we recognize our fallenness and our sin and our desperate need for you. 
If we're ever going to serve you well, we need you. If we're ever going to be people that reflect Jesus in this world, we need you. If we're ever going to be good fathers and mothers and children and neighbors and co-workers, we need you. If we're ever going to proclaim the gospel well, we need you. If we're ever going to spend eternity with our Father in heaven, we need you, Lord Jesus. So please strengthen us where we are weak. We pray that you would be lifted up among us. Help us to leave this place worshiping well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.